Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Pet Cemetery. What is this place? I brought you here to bury Alan's cat. Daddy, is Church all right? Why, Judge? I have no reasons. I dreamed he got hit by a car and you and Mr. Crandall buried him in the pet cemetery. What did we do tonight, Judge? What we did, Lois, was a secret. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Has anyone ever buried a person up there? May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. You're thinking thoughts best not thought of. Daddy's gonna do something really bad. You're thinking of putting him up there. Don't deny the thought hadn't crossed your mind. Come back to me, Gage. Come back to us. Pictures presents Stephen King's all-time best-selling tale of horror. Pet Cemetery. Okay, folks, so this is going to be a spoilerific discussion about Pet Cemetery. Sharon's read the book a long yes. time ago. Yes. I've seen the new film, and we've both seen the old film from 1989. Yes. So we can kind of compare and contrast and uh, talk about the different approaches to it. I will start out by saying, I really don't like Pet Cemetery. Didn't like the original film, don't like this film. So bear that one in mind as we go through. This is going to be fully spoilerific for all of them. If you know the uh, original story, there's a couple of changes to the new one, a couple of significant ones, but nothing that I think is really going to spoil it any more than they've spoiled it themselves already. <laughs> And we rewatched Pet Cemetery 2 to see if it actually might be a little bit better. Because it's a lot sillier. Uh, no, it, it's garbage. It's nasty, shitty garbage. It was made with zero input from Stephen King. Pet Cemetery 2, not really worth watching. Okay, so uh, what we're going to do is we're going to go moment by moment and, uh, and sort of describe roughly how it unfolds. And I believe, Sharon, have you got some questions for me? Yes. I don't know that I quite managed to come up with ten, but I do have a handful. Okay. I asked you for ten just so that you could, like, super focus rather yeah. than just coming up with three. Mm. I'll do two. <laughs> so the Creed family move into the crazy death house. Uh, it's uh, on a motorway, a really, really busy one in Maine. And they they move in and they're like, oh, isn't this nice? And then they turn around and this giant fucking lorry goes straight past. That is in all versions of this as far as I can tell. Mm -hmm. And he's a doctor and he's come to work at the local college to be their medic? Yes. Okay. And this is, like, as, as absurd as this sounds, it's based on... Uh, kind of a partial reality. So you can like, what, sit there and go, right, well, why don't they just move straight away? Stephen King, his wife and child, moved into a house in Maine and uh, it had a horrible, busy Maine road right in front of it. And it's like it's asking for trouble, especially if you've got a small child or pets. And I believe his child's cat got killed on the road and she had to bury it well and she chose to bury it in a pet cemetery that the local children had erected because that road kept fucking killing pets so that bit is not absurd no and he wrote this story after this these events happened i suppose kind of like allowing his mind to go down these roads 
And I'm like, well, what if this happened? And what if this happened? And what if behind the pet cemetery was an ancient Indian burial ground? Mm. Uh, so the doctor's name is Lewis. Lewis Creed, yeah. Yeah. And uh, the uh, two kids are called Gage and Ellie. Uh, Gage is a little boy of about two years old, and Ellie's what, seven or eight? Uh, yeah, something like that. Yeah. yeah. I think she's she might be six in the book, but um, they've made her a little bit older for her. She's definitely older in this new film. She's played by a young actress called Jeet Lawrence, and she's definitely the best thing in it. She gives a really strong performance, and you'll find out why. I don't like the film, but I do tip my hat to how she's managed to pull off her role. I am a lifelong fan of... Powerful little girl performances like Daphne Keene in Logan, for example. Absolutely. And I was going to say that I'm starting to see a pattern of casting directors having more of an eye for casting very strong Mm. little girl actors. I have a similar uh, soft spot for powerful young boy performances like uh, Hayley Joel Osment in uh, The Sixth Sense. Like When there's a kid who can give a really haunting performance... For a start, there's a kind of a melancholy to seeing that because you're like, that kid has had to grow up really fucking fast in real life. Yeah. But it's much more impressive than, than if you get an adult to do the same thing. Mm. It's because we wouldn't expect it of a child. Yeah. And it takes genuine skill from a director to be able to elicit that performance from a young actor without tormenting them. Uh, and Fred Gwynn... In the uh, uh, 1989, I want to say the original, the first adaptation. It's not like an original like it had. It was bursting with originality. It's a TV-level movie that they made of his book, Pet Cemetery, uh, And it starred Herman Munster, Fred Gwynn. I'm Lewis Creed. Judd Cradwell. I live just across the road. You want to watch out for that road. Whenever we go, yeah, you don't want to go down that road, that's from this. Mm. Obviously, that's from the South Park episode where they parodied this, wherein the guy that he meets, and I think it happened in the one where, like, there's a, there's a parody of this with a pet cemetery and a dead pig in it, uh, where Cartman deliberately fakes Butter's death. It's gruesome, and it's about the, the parents going completely off the rails. Uh, but uh, he gets given the idea by the Fred Gwynn character, the the old mechanic, mm. uh, who literally fills him in on this ludicrous premise to ensure that it definitely happens. I know you're thinking of putting him up there, the Indian burial ground up that rod. You're thinking if you bury his body there, it will come back to life. If I dig up my son's body and rebury him at the old Indian burial ground, then I... Don't do it, Sarge. What comes out of the ground ain't the thing you put in. Sometimes dad is better. And Gwyn is the saving grace of the 89 film for me because he's actually, he's it's a memorable performance. It's kind of funny, but it's also kind of sad and it's engaging. And what happens to him is horrible. But you, we don't really get that much Fred Gwyn in cinema. No, we don't. And I mean, I, I get what you mean about him being the saving grace. And I would say... Certainly his his performance with what he's got is good. I personally think the way they shape his character with script and, and how he interacts with everybody mm. is just as bad as everything else in the film. Yes, agreed. 
I think uh, that it's more down to the performance than the character. Mm, yeah. The poster for the 1989 film, the way it's framed, it there's like this half a zombie head at the top of the poster. Yeah. And it looks for all the world like that's Fred Gwynn. Right. But it's not. And his character never is in the position of being zombified. Mm. Maybe they were trying to sell it on the strength of, we've got us a Herman Munster. I think that's exactly what they were doing. But Herman Munster was never a threat anyway. I know. He was the he was the one who told bad dad jokes and went... <laughs> well, yeah, he's that's the thing. He's Gomez Adams, but with Fester's character. Yeah. yeah. And now I'm thinking of Pet Cemetery with an Adams Family soundtrack. Sing! Anyway, John Lithgow plays uh, uh, Nick Nolte as Judd McCabe. He's like, oh, God damn it, you're coming around here in the pet cemetery. He's, he looks exactly, exactly like Nick Nolte. It's fucking weird. Okay. Because when he speaks, it's definitely John Lithgow under there. Mm. And uh, there's a, a trade-off. Because in the original, Fred Gwynn is sweet and avuncular and kind of a... They position him as a sort of a surrogate father to Lewis, who, like, apparently his father died That's when he right. was younger. That's right. He very much is that in the yeah. book. Yeah. So he's kind of like a, a, an old father figure. Uh, whereas in this, Lithgow plays him more creepy. So when a little girl turns up in his house, it's like, oh, that's fine, dear. And, like, he's helpful, but he's a bit gruff and he's a bit scary and she's not too sure at first. And then he sort of ingratiates himself on the family. And it's like, well, this film could go in a completely different direction where he's just a kiddie fiddler. Mm. That's not an angle I would have taken at all. Mm. And I'm sure that's not what they intended. But because of the creepy way that Lithgow plays it, you kind of got that. Yeah. And, and that's obviously because it's being made now rather than 89 when they had no clue about kiddie fiddlers. Okay. Like they hadn't invented them yet. Mm. Well, that answers one of my um, questions, actually, because regarding the themes that are there in the book, if you dig for them, one of the elements of it is how what coping methods we have specifically for grief. And part of the point of... Judd being a replacement father figure for Lewis, who lost his own father very early, is that um, Rachel, his wife, has learned appalling coping methods for for grief from her family. Mm -hmm. Her family has handled death in an extremely negative and unhealthy way, and it has marked her for life. And although Lewis seems to be better able to cope with that kind of thing there is actually a void in his coping methods and Judd comes along and fills in some of that teaching of this is what we do when we lose people and this is what we do when we lose pets we bury them in the pet cemetery exactly he teaches him a bad coping method so it sounds as though by changing his relationship with Judd they may possibly have spoofed that um, theme they didn't so much change it but uh, he that they don't get close. Mm. Like, there's never any sense of trust between the two of them. Right. Like, not that see, I that's, got. That's like really Lewis crucial. is like, who is this creepy old man? Yeah. Quite see, a lot. There's a difference between this man who I've come to know and really trust and really mm. bond with is teaching me a fucking terrible thing to do with my zombie pet, not zombie yet, but will be. And okay, my this, soon to be zombie this pet. creepy old man is suggesting that I do something that's clearly very sacrilegious and probably shouldn't be done. I think I'll say no. Well, there's a direct, like, they, they spin out the actual burial, mm. uh, and it's like in the craziest, creepiest, darkest, most horrible fucking area, and yeah. it's like, 
Uh, he says, what are we doing here? Mm. And he goes, just burn a cat, that's all. And he's like smoking a cigarette. And it's like, right. fuck's sake, dude. So the setup of the two cemeteries is uh, you've got this one old cemetery that's uh, had a bunch of pets buried in it since what? the Most of the 19th century. And there's actually, they add a weird, creepy procession of kids in the new one. They're sort of walking along, marching along. You never see their faces. They're all wearing papier-mâché animal masks. And there's like, they're beating one drum and they're mo- walking a dead dog in a uh, uh, wheelbarrow all the way to the pet cemetery. And the girl's like, hmm, now this I gotta see. And comes to nothing. They never come back again, though the, the mask does. Mm. And I can see, if you look in the subtext of the film, what they were doing with that. But it just seems to have been done to over-egg the creepy pudding. It feels, from the way you describe it and from what I've seen in the trailer, it felt like Baby Purge. Baby Purge. Like they're doing this to address grief rather than rage, but they're putting on the masks and going and doing something which you're not meant to do except at certain times. I don't know, because actually just burying your pets in the pet cemetery seems absolutely fine. Yeah. It's just a graveyard for cats. Exactly, but don't ritualise it. Yeah, well, they have. Yeah, or at least not in a really terrifying way. Yeah. Here's a little word on music. This is the theme from the Amityville Horror by Lelo Schifrin from 1979. This is Jerry Goldsmith's Poltergeist from This is Elliot Goldenthal's Pet Cemetery from 1989. They even used the Amityville theme for the trailer. What is this place? I brought you here to bury Alan's cat. Daddy, is church all right? Why, Judd? I have Marines. Expensive horror films have more expensive theme tunes, and there would be sort of choirs of small children going, ah, So because consequence follows action, or in this case, inaction, uh, the house with no fence right in front of an incredibly busy road populated entirely by lorries going at 80 miles an hour, the cat dies somehow. And in all versions of things, Judd McCabe's like, oh, well, we've got to do something with this one, but don't tell the little girl. And... 
they deal with it at night. And Judd takes Lewis up to the pet cemetery and then past it to the cemetery behind it, which is an ancient Indian burial ground. And he says, you've got, you got to like create a furrow, like dig a hole in the dirt there, then bury the, the cat and build a cairn on top of it with uh, um, stones. And I'm like, hmm. I mean, the purpose of putting a cairn over a grave is when the ground is too hard for you to dig it particularly deep, putting yeah. a cairn over the top stops wild animals getting to the body. Right. That's the purpose it serves. However, since part of the point of in the first movie, you bury the animal in a shallow grave so that it can dig its way out, yeah. putting the putting cairn rocks over on the top, top seems would like... seem to defeat that object. Yeah. So the cat comes back and it's obviously evil and savage and it hangs around outside the window and then when he, he gets he's like, hey, how's it going, church? And the cat's like, meow, scratches his face up. This is the same across all versions. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, there's a push-pull here in the new version because new horror films, and I find them tripping themselves up like this over and over again. Old horror films, frequently, people behave like fucking idiots. And they are required to behave like fucking idiots to make the stupid things happen in the film. I think uh, Cabin in the Woods actually directly addressed this with a gas that uh, um, addles your brain and makes you do stupid things. It, it sort of explains the narrative contrivance of people behaving badly in, in, and uh, uh, with poor judgment in horror films. Now, in new horror films, they strive, by and large, to make characters more relatable, more human, to, to give them more dimensionality, to write them better than they were 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And that then comes into contact with... But they have to carry on doing the crazy thing, staying in the bad place, not just like they don't ever decide, fuck it, we're going to stand back to back in the middle of the room holding, holding knives. knives yeah. the, the difficulty is they now have to start relatable and then there's a biting point where their relatability faces a consequence of, okay, these people are now obsessed. And when you're dealing with something like a pet cemetery, you're really fucked because it, it requires your characters, to continue doing dumb things. Yeah. Okay. The way I would say quality horror films get around this, it's not really a get around this. Say, for example, The Babadook. Yes. It's not really a get around it. It's a fundamental part of it. They are doing these things that somebody in their right mind would not do Mm. because they are not in their right mind. Bingo. Because something that they're dealing with, which is part and parcel of what the horror is exploring, is affecting how they behave and how they react and how they respond. And what we are examining uh, through the lens of the horror film is, why do our brains make us do these things which are not good for us? Yeah. Now, when you're making a story that is ostensibly about how people are dealing with grief, you have a perfect window for this. Because if you can craft it well enough, the reason that they behave the way they do is because... They're not processing the grief properly. Yeah. And And I'm guessing that they don't do that. If you want to read it in a straightforward way, you could say throughout the film that the actions of Lewis are brought on by the death of Victor, then the death of Church, the anxiety and worry, and just there's various things that contribute. Although you're also supposed to ignore the fact that it takes place over a number of months, not days. Mm. And... It never really gets discussed, and it never he never gets an outlet, and he just gets up, goes to work, comes back home, and does mad things. 
and everybody does. It's kind of like Amityville. Mm. So there's a certain level of suspension of disbelief required. And for me, it never hit home in any version. Right. It never made me feel like, oh, this is actually understandable and believable. Mm. And also, crucially, it never felt like an exploration of grief the way that the Babadook most definitely does. Absolutely. Now, I'm in the minority on this one. When I checked last, it was at 82% on Rotten Tomatoes. Mm. Four out of five journalists like this film enough to say, yes, it's good. I'm definitely one in five here. Mm. I'm actually in a minority of a minority because I really hate it. And there's got to be reasons why it's considered good. Yeah. Interestingly, I'm now in the edit. That has dropped to 58%. So initially, everyone went, yeah, this is a good movie. And then as a few days went by, everyone was going, nah, this is not a good movie. So opinion is divided on the subject. But then again, It Comes at Night also got very high marks. And I think that film is shit. And hereditary. And hereditary. Yeah. I mean, I I don't think Hereditary is shit in the same way that It Comes at Night actually is shit. Okay. But I really don't like Hereditary. Mm. There's a philosophical wall I keep slamming up against. Mm. But in this one, they go out of their way to be nasty. And it's a nasty book in the first place. Mm, It is. It Comes at Night, 87%. Hereditary, 89%. I am in the minority minority on this one. Now, Jason Clark plays Lewis, and automatically you're off personality a, void, Jason Clark. You're off on the bad. <laughs> I, I really don't want to insult Jason Clark, but it's really difficult not to when his on-screen presence is roughly akin to a glass of tap water. He's like Jai Courtney's big brother. No, Jai Courtney's got a rubbishness about him. There's something respectable about Jason Clark, okay. uh, you know, even if he is boring. Mm. He's more like Colm Fjord. Okay. You know, you're watching a Colm Fjord film, it might be a legal drama. There's nothing for me in this, mm. but that's fine. With Jason Clark, one of my favourite films of all time, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, the middle one, he's good enough in that role but I'm trying to imagine what that same film would have been like with Chris Evans in that same role so much fucking better however to a point you're supposed to be looking at the monkey I was going to say not the dude he serves the purpose of not distracting you from the apes so there you go and then he was also in uh, Terminator 5 Genesis and he was rubbish in that he was in Winchester which I've not yet seen Mm -hmm. principally because while I love Helen Mirren the 14% freshness rating is like covering your back garden in wolf piss and I'm a deer it's problematic, but it's on Netflix. But I love Helen Mirren, so I'll bear all that for her. And Jason Clark's along for the ride like a muesli bar in the glove box. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Rachel, meanwhile, mm-hmm. the wife, the mother, in the original, she's played by... In, sorry, in the 89 version, she's played by Tasha Yar. Mm-hmm. What's her, her actual name? Denise Crosby. Denise Crosby, that's the one. And she's... A terrible character in that uh, film. She's nonsensical. She does. She's very similar in the book, to be fair. She's one of really? my least favourite Stephen King characters. Mm. And Stephen King has uh, not really had a fantastic relationship over the years with f- brilliant lead female characters. Mm. You've got Bev. 
and all the uh, others. And all the others. <laughs> I think he... Especially Shelley Duvall's uh, character in The Shining. I think he made another pass at the kind of person Rachel was intended to be with Gerald's game. Oof. Somebody who has been through a trauma and it's it's set her up to behave in a particular way and that comes into play with how she reacts to a situation. The problem is that this is not Rachel's story. You barely see, really, what... I mean, although you know why she does the things that she does, she doesn't really do much. Yeah. She just gets upset about things. Gerald's Game. That is two-thirds of a good movie. Yeah. Again, like it's a horror movie, and they like you know, relatable, relatable, and then they fudge the end by having this would not happen with people that we can relate to. It'll only happen to stupid characters in movies. Mm. And what the fuck with this thing? Anyway, not going to spoil Gerald's game, but watch it, and you'll know what I mean when you it's just what with yeah. that end. There's a moment where you're just like, what? what the actual hell? Anyway, so Rachel, the wife has, as you say, a bad relationship with death. Mm -hmm. When she was younger, her sister Zelda had spinal meningitis and in the book died of it. Mm -hmm. In the 89 version, died of it? She does, yeah. In the, in the 89 version, actually, they couldn't be bothered to explain what spinal meningitis was, so she has cancer instead. Right, just cancer. I've, I don't remember it ever being said with spinal meningitis, but I'm using that term here because I looked it up in the book. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, she has uh, the, the, the twisted back and um, is... <laughs> Let's make no bones about it. She's made to look like a fucking monster. Mm. In this version, they go even further and have her be straight up malevolent. It just seems to radiate from the screen. Spinal meningitis. Ew. Right. And they go out of their way to depict her as horrific. Yeah. See, this is where Rather I than that poor girl. Yeah. This is where I think you have to be really, really careful about doing an adaptation from book to movie because... With with adaptations, there's always this element of what can we do better with a film that that couldn't have been done with the book. Especially if you're updating it decades later Absolutely. when we know more shit, especially Absolutely. about medical conditions. Yeah. And we also are trying not to make people who are living with medical conditions or who've had loved ones die of medical conditions feel bad. Yeah. As it stands, the 2019 version of Pet Cemetery is the polar opposite of one of my absolute favourite ghost stories of all time, The Orphanage. And if you've seen The Orphanage and listened to our show on it, you'll know exactly what I mean about perspective on disability. It also happens to be one of the best films ever made on the subject of grief because it takes this diametrically, philosophically opposing view. And when you're presenting something in a book... And you're describing it, and particularly you're describing it through the eyes of the person who is a child, doesn't understand what's going on, has been left with a massive responsibility that she should never have been left with, and all the other things that add up to why Rachel perceives Zelda as a monster, even as you understand that this is her through the eyes of a small girl, mm. she isn't actually a monster. When you translate that into visual language on a screen, it's harder... I'm not going to say it's impossible because if you if you haven't tried then you haven't tried and they didn't with the with the 89 film but to shape what the audience sees so that the audience can feel why Rachel is afraid of her 
but to bring in an element of sympathy to that. Because at the end of the day, the audience is simultaneously seeing her as Rachel saw her, but also seeing her through their own eyes. Yeah. The eye of the movie in this new one says, what a fucking monster. And they go one further. Little Rachel is charged with bringing dinner to her dying sister. No one else is in the house, it would appear. Her parents are insane. They've left her alone and just gone, like, you deal with it. And rather than going upstairs to to greet her face to face, she is scared and puts the meal in the dumb waiter. Mm-hmm. Is this in the book? Uh, I, I'm going to say possibly. I honestly can't remember. Okay. She presses the button to make the dumb waiter take the food up. There's a lot of bumping from upstairs. And then there's a terrible crash. And then she's terrified and she slowly opens the door of the dumb waiter. And her sister Zelda has flung herself down the shaft to end up in a crunched up bone heap at the bottom, committing suicide rather than endure one more day with uh, spinal meningitis. Right, I don't think And thus terrorising her sister for life. Okay, I don't think that's how Zelda dies in the book. It's certainly not how she dies in the 89 film. She just dies. And the point of that is that Rachel is relieved and feels immensely guilty about that fact. Right. Um, They barely... uh, They don't... They don't touch on that not really the focus is on wasn't it a terrifying way that her sister died and that's fucked her up good see that's not helpful no it's really not not. helpful at all and it's it is entirely possible to do that i will give you an example where they did it really well and you've already mentioned it sixth sense yeah the little girl who's being um who's sick uh kira yeah she looks terrifying and when we see her through Cole's eyes we understand why he is initially so scared of her yeah. but then when we understand her circumstance we start all to of our see... sympathies end up with her exactly I took this premise myself mm-hmm. and reworked it uh, as an element of let them go there's a thread in that of uh, Rebecca looking after her mother after she suffers a stroke Uh, and I used my own experiences after um, uh, my father um, went over the handlebars of his uh, push bike and smashed his face up and uh, just confronting him in the hospital with a sewn together face was fairly terrifying for a small pair of children. Uh, it was around the same time that my grandfather suffered a stroke and was uh, completely paralysed along uh, one side and spoke very, very slowly. And again, as a child, you're bewildered. Where has Grandpa gone? And the whole point of Rebecca's thread in the book was shouldering all the responsibility of looking after her herself and, again, the, pu- the push-pull of wanting to be free but desperately caring for this person and, and the there's a there's the creepiness there and, and the slightly disembodied sense of, of you know where has my mother gone and yet there's melancholy and regret and ultimately I humanized Rebecca's mother as much as I possibly could there's moments of genuine touching connection between them and after she's died there's still that connection there and I went out of my way to make it a really human story so when we go back to their version of this now in 2019 and it's so much more grotesque I've taken it and turned it into something beautiful they've made it so ugly it offends me on a personal level 
Also, it's important to note that New Century, as a book series, one of the key themes is grief and how we handle it. So when they go, well, this film's about grief, I'm like, is it? Fucking is it? Explain how. Well, probably shouldn't bury your pets in a pet cemetery because they'll come back to life. Really? Because that's not, that's not really tackling grief. We'll get to that in a minute. If you've not yet had the pleasure of listening to Let Them Go, it is currently available on my Bandcamp page for $7. Here's a clip. When you were a soldier, how did you manage to keep being brave? Men are expected to be brave. It's our birthright. (laughs) That sounds more like an obligation than a right. I was surrounded by other men. And while we were given to grumble and complain about our conditions, it was not the done thing to discuss one's fears. But I'm asking you to discuss them with me now. I keep having little bursts of bravery, and I feel like I can cope with whatever happens, but... But they don't last. She drew back from him and studied his face. So how do you sustain it? There's a switch inside. Pushing it keeps me focused on what I have to do, and I know sometimes that if I let it switch back, I'm going to break down altogether. I promise myself I'll do that when I'm safe, and the men around me are safe, and I can be alone and fall to pieces without anybody coming to harm. He held her hands. So you fall to pieces all you want as soon as I leave you alone, because I'm going to protect you and everyone else. I promise. Cross your heart. And hope to die. There's another thread as well, as, as well as uh, uh, Rachel's um, terrible sister apparitions that keep turning up and the, the cemetery that's not for pets that resurrects cats. There's Victor Pascal, who's this uh, student who uh, dies in a horrible uh, crash that gets cut to after just a discussion. In both films, it's like a discussion and then boom, head wound. Like terrible, weeping, bursting head wound. Yeah, it's almost literally the first thing that happens in the book and it is horrendous. It's described in great detail. It's ugly and unpleasant and it's it's what triggers the whole thing. So this boy dies on Lewis's operating table and then uh, he and he feels guilty because he couldn't save him. And Victor, rather than haunting him in a malevolent fashion, hangs around him. He actually says, stay with me. And then Victor does. Uh, He's trying to warn him about the shit that's about to happen. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of shining in here. There's a lot. It seems to follow by shining rules. But because Lewis doesn't really have a shining or a shinning. Shh, you want to get sued? He's not really receptive to it. So all of Victor's warnings turn into suggestions for him. He's like... Let me tell you, don't go to the ancient Indian burial ground. It's cursed. The ground is sour. Mm. And he's like, I probably should do that. Yeah, I'm thinking about doing that even more now that you mention it. And like, there's a series of terrifying nighttime visions. And he's like, oh, the, the worst things ever are going to happen. And he sort of gives him a, a vision of it. And Lewis, rather than going, fuck this and leaving, doesn't. Mm. 
Now, if Stephen King actually got those visions telling him, oh, there's going to be a giant terrible crash on this road, plus there's this road that you keep walking past every single day, probably should have put a fucking fence okay, in there. those terrible visions of the crash, that's your own anxiety, Steve. It's your intuition it's, telling yeah. you probably best do something Just about do this. do something about this, this fence and lack thereof. But yeah, I mean, the, the thread of um, Victor's presence to me was kind of a... A warning, not just about the you know, don't do this incredibly stupid thing that it's blatantly obvious that you shouldn't do because it's it's going to lead to bad things, is the taking on of the responsibility, the fact that Lewis feels like he is responsible for Victor, the fact that he feels like he's responsible for his family, to the degree of must not let anybody die. Now. Again, that sort of ties in with the fact that he's a doctor. It sort of ties in with the fact that he doesn't have a great relationship with death and that Rachel has a terrible relationship with death. But honestly, in even in the book, it's not great. It, this was a fairly early work of Stephen King's. He had not really honed his skill in putting those themes across, in my opinion. So you're not working with a great masterpiece to begin with. So Lewis goes and chats with Judd McCabe and is uh, like, so about this cat? And Judd's like, oh, yeah, yeah, probably shouldn't have told you about the cat. And he's like, why the fuck did you tell me about the cat? And he's like, well, I did it with my dog a while back when I was a, a young boy. And the dog came back and I had to kill it with a shovel. And yeah, from the sounds of it, it's, it's, it's not the exception that church is like this. It's the rule. Judd has had direct experience with this. But he explains it in the film as, oh, that little girl's touched me. For the first time, I've been touched by uh, someone. And it's, it's really, it's, it's touching. And, and uh, uh, I just wanted to do something nice for her. And I'm like, oh, that's not creepy. And like, choice of words. and yeah. But the problem here is, and this is the whole book in, in, in encapsulated, Judd's seen exactly what happens. Judd tells him to do this thing. Mm. And then the same shit happens. And then Lewis, now knowing what happens, continues to do the bad thing. Mm. Which is impossible to relate to. It's, it's not even like being on heroin, whereby when the bad thing, which is the withdrawal symptoms and the desperation for heroin starts to kick in, at least you've got the high of heroin to tell you that this was probably a good thing. There's nothing good about church coming back at all. No. Like the, the girl's like, oh, church is bad. Oh, no. <laughs> See, I think there is a way of framing this story that makes more sense and I think communicates the essence of it, which is sometimes dead is better. Sometimes Because dead this is, is an expansion of the monkey paw short story. Yeah. Um, What's the monkey paw? Okay, the monkey short? paw short story is a very, very old story. I have no idea where it came from originally, but what happens is uh, a lady has a son who goes off to war and gets killed, and she is lonely and she misses him, and somehow she gets hold of a cursed monkey's paw. I have no idea how this turns up in the story, but it grants wishes. The yogurt is also cursed. Yes. It, the monkey paw grants wishes. Uh, she wishes for her son to be alive again, and then there's a knock at the door, and she opens the door, and of course there is a dirt-falling zombie mm. outside the house. This, by the way, was done way better in Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows with the tale of the three brothers. Indeed. So that's the essence of it, and the point being that when somebody has died, you need to let them go, because constantly thinking about them and wanting them to come back is a curse, not a blessing. Now, frame this in a manner whereby the cat dies 
And well, the, the, for start, the end of these stories, if they're going to be of any use to anyone,、mm. is the person who has tried to bring this dead person back from the dead,、mm. realizing that the natural way of things is better, and sadly resigning、yeah. the dead person back to the flames, or allowing the dead person to depart and living on. That's A story、mm. that is something where we learn. Yes, this is not that, and that's why this is shit. Yes. Okay. So better version. Cat dies. Ellie is there. Ellie is broken. Okay,、mm-hmm. and this plays in with the whole losing pets teaches children how to understand yeah, death. Because he、life. goes behind her back in all versions and resurrects、She's、the、away. cat before Ellie can find out that Church is dead. Exactly. It's all based on the supposition she's going to be shattered. Yes. So Ellie knows that the cat is dead. Ellie or is devastated about this.、Um, Lewis is told about the pet cemetery by Judd, but warned it won't bring you happiness. But you know this is an option. Goes and brings the cat back. Cat comes back. Cat is horrendous. Ellie is horrified. Ellie eventually starts to say it would be better if Church Church was just dead.、Mm-hmm. Then Gage gets killed. Whoa! Spoiler. <laughs> Family should understand at this point. Don't bring him back. It won't be good. But Lewis wants to do it anyway because he's so devastated. How is this better? Well, just because it, the message of it is he's he's because he's seen what's happened to church. It makes no fucking sense. Like, do you want a, like a demonic zombie kid? No, not really. No, I, <laughs> in no state of grief would I go. Yes,、okay. anything for like. If you had no model for it,、mm. you might. Yeah. If you've got the model for it, you wouldn't.、Mm. Church coming back beforehand doesn't mean he's more tempted. Church coming back beforehand should make him less tempted. tempted. Okay. It doesn't.、Mm. Well, I was thinking it would be along the lines of Lewis hasn't learned because his relationship with grief is terrible, but Ellie knows no. now. Here's how you、grows. do that story. He st- finds out about the thing,、mm. start buries the cat. The cat starts coming back. Judd rushes into the cemetery and kills Church with a shovel, dismembering it. While he goes, "No, that was Church. He was coming back. You motherfucker!" He beats Judd up, an old man.、Mm. Then they never speak to each other. Then Gage dies. Right. Then, knowing only that, that the, the cat, cat was、back. going to come back, he buries the child, and then it becomes apparent why、yeah. Judd was doing that. Yeah. I've just fixed your fucking story for you. Anyway, let's get on with the second half of Pet Cemetery. Okay. Because as Sharon's just. Let on, Gage dies. The little boy gets run over by a truck. It's horrible. And then they're at the funeral, and the dad, the father of、um, Rachel, the father of Rachel, goes ballistic at the funeral and goes, "You murderer, killer of children!" Punches Lewis in the face, and they like barge up against the tiny little white coffin. This sort of casket fell over. Big deal. Her fucking body fell out. Put her back in it. It's not like it matters if she breaks something. Like this little hand comes out, and like that gives Lewis an idea. He's like, "Aha, little hand." It's the mo- it's it's just terrible. But like, he doesn't go aha because he's busy going.、Nah! It's just the most ridiculous, like over-the-top melodrama. I can't relate to any of this anymore.、Mm. 
These people are ludicrous and hateful. And by the way, in case you forgot, the father giving Lewis a piece of his mind for letting his grandson die of a kite in a truck is the guy who left his daughter home alone looking after his other daughter with spinal meningitis and she died. We're going to talk about that? No. I knew something like this would happen. I told her when you were first married, you'll have all the grief you can stand and more, I said. And I look at this. I hope you rot in hell! Where were you when he was playing in the road? You stinking shit! You killer of jokes! It's the saddest, most horrible thing imaginable, and they do such a shit job of it. Mm. Anyway, Rachel goes with the daughter to uh, her parents. Good idea. And just, just, just to heal there. And then he goes to the real cemetery, digs up his son's body, buries him in the Indian burial ground. Gage comes back and kills Judd McCabe with a scalpel. Sneaks into the house, fucks him up good, slashes his Achilles tendon and his cheeks with this thing, and then bites at his, his throat out and rips off his face. And honestly, the really disturbing thing about this is not what's going on. I just kept thinking about the kid, Miko Hughes. Uh, this little kid's wandering around, holding a scalpel up near his eye, and just like, no, this isn't worth it. No, this isn't worth it. No, this isn't worth it. Not for this fucking scene. Not for this fucking film. He, like, dives out of the attic, and he's like, fucking Chucky. And uh, that he's actually better as a villain mm. when he's just a doll, a puppet. I was going to say, a lot because of that it's, is very bad puppet work. It's like Brain Dead, the, like, the evil baby in Brain Dead. That's like comedy. There's times when the 89 version can't bolt itself down. It's a tent in a high wind and it's like it's flapping everywhere. And it becomes kind of a black comedy. It's, it's so obscene and so terrible what's happening that you can't help but laugh because everyone's reacting to it in such an over-the-top way. And then the mum comes back and the little boy's like, Hey, mummy, I got something for you. And then slashes her up. And it's horrible. And then somehow, like, she falls out of the attic hanging on a noose. So we're to believe that the little tiny baby has dragged his mum up to the attic and then let her drop on a noose? How? Because when he grapples with his dad, it's so apparent that Miko Hughes has no musculature at all. He's like this little tiny weak child. If he had this obscene, monstrous strength that he would require to be able to, with his tiny frame, wrestle his mother's corpse up to the attic, he wouldn't need to attack them with a scalpel. He'd be able to use a hatchet and a machete. Frankly, he could tear Lewis's head off with his bare hands. But that's not what's happening. It's just an evil toddler. Oh, daddy. And then he, like, injects him with poison to kill his child. And the kid wanders off going, no fair. And then stumbles over. And, and Miko Hughes bangs his head on the door. I'm like, fucking not worth it. Fucking not worth it, you irresponsible pricks. How dare you make this movie? I hate Pet Cemetery, 1989. Now... 2019 goes and I'll go you one further <laughs> and they don't kill Gage okay they kill Ellie okay 
it's they fake it out like um rather than killing the cat in the original version he just grabs a cat yanks up a real cat and the cat's like Aah! and then injects it in the ass with poison in this he like holds the cat down and, and is like Aah! and he goes oh i can't do this takes the cat to like way out into the wilderness leaves it there and then it comes back along the road and the little girl at her birthday party goes i'm going to run out onto this incredibly busy road that we've been living next to for fucking months and she's like lyra's age and the fact that she's like lyra's age was probably instrumental in why i fucking hate this film so fucking much and you can read into this that lewis changed things by not killing the cat even though it wasn't actually at this point that he was supposed to kill the cat in the original story but by not killing the cat by taking it out to the wilderness and letting it go on the one hand, an act of mercy. On the other hand, shedding all responsibility for this demon cat. He changed the timeline and the course of events went differently. And so she's looking at this cat going, oh, here you can, boy. Yeah, yeah. And this giant fucking lorry is coming towards her. And like Gage wanders out after her and the, and Lewis runs out to grab Gage. And there's this oh, oh, like lorry going on, this massive commotion behind her. And, and Ellie turns around and goes, huh, it's almost like there's something going on behind me. And then she turns around and does the Austin Powers. For about 15 years until the truck finally breaks, turns sideways, rolls over on its side, then the back comes flying off, scrapes along the road incredibly slowly, and, and she's just standing there going, no! And then, boom, they kill a child. Well, fucking done, Pet Cemetery. You killed another kid. However, because they did this, the basic setup is exactly the same, but... Uh, Rachel goes back to her parents' house and now she stands around the kitchen like looking at the dumb waiter reliving these moments and it's like, oh, you've gone back here to heal, have you? Good idea. And this fucking, like the, the, the Victor, the guy who's doing like The Shining, turning up like Jack in American Wolf in London, is turning up in front of the little boy Gage and he's like, oh, mommy, there's this scary guy with blood coming out of his head and she's like, there's no one there, honey. No one there at all. Rather importantly, at the beginning of the film... The little girl, Ellie, asks, you know, about death. And I can't remember exactly what, what regarding what it's about. I think it's like the, the pet cemetery itself has kind of spooked her. And the the mum says, you know, yeah, remember, like, should be uh, that you go to heaven and then look down and, and like grandma did. And the dad's like, well, let's not just, you know, like, talk about that like that. And... She's like, what do you mean? And the suggestion You're assuming is, Grandma went to heaven. <laughs> well, the suggestion is that Lewis is like, don't tell her about heaven. Mm. And then they have a fucking arg- drag out argument, and she's like, and he's like, I think that she needs to know about death and what that death's natural. So the father's arguing that death is a natural thing. Mm. So it's like, okay, so he's already there. He's at that point, and then throughout the rest of the film, refuses to follow this logic he's already shown. Yeah. But she's not saying death's unnatural. She's just saying, and then you go to heaven, which is something we'd like to believe is the truth. Mm. And we'd like to tell kids to not scare the shit out of them. Mm. I'm totally pro the idea of telling people about heaven because, frankly, it's better to have something to think about at the uh, end of your life as opposed to being terrified that there's nothing or using the idea that there is nothing to be a fucking asshole to everybody. Mm. Not so much saying with absolute assurance... There is a heaven, but saying, a lot of people believe there is a heaven, and wouldn't it be nice? 
So instead of Miko Hughes going, <laughs> I want to play with you, mommy. Uh, we've got this little girl who's actually a really good actor. And this is where her performance comes in because the dad brings her back. And rather than immediately going <laughs> and getting stab happy, she's just kind of like shell shocked. And she's like, where am I, daddy? And so he takes her to the tub and she's just in the tub, just kind of like in a trance and he's brushing her hair and like clumps start coming out of it. And like he sees that they've pinned her head together because of the cranial damage being so terrible. And they, they do something really quite subtle with her eye. I don't know whether it's the actress doing it herself or whether it's computer assisted. One of her eyes keeps drifting ever so slightly and she keeps like looking over at him. And I'm, I was really impressed at this point in the film that they had, rather than just going straight for the stabby, were going for more creepy. And it was manifestly apparent that they were going for Bride of Frankenstein here. Now, in the original version, the uh, 89 um, film, they bring up the story of Timmy Bateman, uh, who is uh, someone that Judd tells him about, a soldier who came, uh, who did not come back from the war because he died. Mm-hmm. It was brought, his body was brought back. His father buried his body at the uh, uh, Indian burial ground. And he came back, and specifically in the book it says, he came back terrorizing people with secrets he had no earthly way of knowing. And that's so much more interesting than what they do in the movie, which is where he's just staggering around like a Frankenstein going, and just being an angry zombie. Mm. And his dad eventually burns the house down with him in it and keeps him there. And he actually, I didn't catch this the uh, time I saw it before, but he actually says in the subtitles, love dead, hate living, which is a line from Bride of Frankenstein. And it's like, yeah, it's a little on the nose, but like, we get it. You're Mm. saying that everything that wasn't learned by Victor Frankenstein. So it it is now a Frankenstein story. And it always kind of was. It's just that Frankenstein has an elegance to it and Pet Cemetery does not. Even though it ends in tragedy. I don't particularly love Frankenstein and I think that there are better ways you could end that book, Mary Shelley. But you're the mother of science fiction, so we'll let you off on that one. You've (laughs) got us. Thank you very much for creating (laughs) sci-fi. So Ellie is now... Bride of Frankenstein, he's, he's brought her back and she doesn't know who she is or where she is. He tucks her into bed and she says, you know, will you lie beside me? And, you know, he's, she's, she says, I can hear the woods. And he says, close the window, darling. And she says, no, 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 inside. And it's really kind of an eerie performance. And he's very much like, shut up, go to sleep. Just like, we'll talk about this in the morning. I'm just not going to confront this and talk about it. I'm just not going to deal with the whole death thing, which again, runs entirely contrary to him trying to explain about death earlier. Like if you're going to um, like set this up as this character, then he, like they both have to have a uh, a version of death that when they talk about it, it comes off as consistent with how they behave for the rest of it. Uh, ultimately, uh, Rachel's obsession with death isn't about death really at all she's fixated on the horrific scenario regarding zelda and her her incredibly messy terrifying suicide yeah like they've they've upped her character in the book um well their their opposing viewpoints are kind of all of rachel's experiences with death are very visceral and, and traumatic because she was there and she felt it and so she is unable to really intellectualize death at all and conceptualize it lewis his view of death is very detached and rational but he doesn't really have that mm. gut relationship with it the rachel and the performance in this film is better than the one in the 89 version there's more rationality there she's more bolted down than lewis mm. It would have been hard to get worse, to be fair. And she, because she's not constrained so much by the book, 
makes decisions that are more rational and sensible and I don't want to like be like totally demanding rationality from desperately grieving people. Mm. But there are times when like it's it's not so much well it's more realistic than they do that. It's like no no no, it's not more realistic. You just require them to have this thing happen in this book to make it move to the next horrible scenario. It's not more realistic, it's just more conducive to the narrative. Mm. And that's what depresses me because it's manufactured stupidity and that's the province of crappy horror films. They also never discuss in any version of it, unless they talk about it in the book, the parents. Rachel's terrible parents who leave her mm. with Zelda. Oh yeah, no, 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 that's a big element of it. They do mention that in the 89 film. Lewis says to Rachel, it, it's, this was not your fault, this was your parents' fault. They should never have left you alone with her. Okay, she never confronts them. Right. They're in both films. Oh, I see films. what you mean. Yeah, it's, it's talked about, but she doesn't deal with them. She ne- Like, that's the healthy way of finishing this. When you left me with my sister, how could you? you she, was, she was your little girl. Mm-hmm. You know, you made her this monster in my eyes because I was left alone and undefended. Like, just a, a very unpleasant but ultimately healthy set to with these awful parents who basically wash their hands of the whole scenario. I, I suspect... And then the, have them breaking down and weeping and, and saying, well, we, we couldn't bear to see our daughter in, in, in the grip of something so terrible. I, I suspect that the, the confrontation way of dealing with things that happened to you as a child is far much more of a modern thing. Um, you said yourself the other day that, that to do an adaptation now, it makes no sense that parents would be that negligent these days. Uh, not without some serious involvement yeah. happening. Someone else would pick up on it. Social services. Um, your parents did something that left you utterly scarred and you are never able to address that with them is a big theme in therapy books from 20, 30 years ago. Hmm. I think that is is less of a thing now because these days there's much more of an emphasis of if something happened to you that caused you trauma, you, you do need to confront it in some way. It might not necessarily be storming into the nursing home and telling your mother that she was a terrible person, but something is going to have to happen. Like in you can't, uh, You can't just wait for them to die and hope that that will make it all go away. Yeah. So from the book... What um, becomes apparent from when uh, Lewis talks to Judd and goes, about that cat and my daughter, they never mention Timmy. He goes through the microfiche in the uh, uh, library and finds bodies stolen from uh, the morgue. And it's like, oh, that'll be Timmy then. But Mm -hmm. they never go into that. So the monkey's paw is kind of snipped off and thrown away. Yeah. Um, So Judd never gets to tell him that what was inside Timmy wasn't Timmy anymore. Mm. It knew things. And it spoke like Timmy sometimes, but it was, uh, Judd theorised, a demon that had uh, taken possession of the, uh, uh, the body. And it has that, he says, that place has power and its own evil purpose, and it may have caused your child's death because I introduced you. Mm-hmm. So um, that kind of ups the ante. That suggests that the uh, cemetery itself is kind of making things happen. Get me that little girl's body. I want to inhabit it. Continue. Hereditary. Yeah. Again. I've actually got several things about hereditary coming up. Okay. Yeah. But you're on it. You're on it. 
But this then calls into question everything Judd does in in every version. Mm. Because if it's just the dog, even then, it's like you've had experience with this and you know that that's what happens every time. But it's been a long while. Maybe you could convince yourself of that. But in the book, he has a wife, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. Norma. Norma. What happens in the book? Because she's not in the film at all. Hold on. I'll tell you. She has a heart attack and Lewis saves her, stops her from dying. Mm -hmm. And this um, makes Lewis more aware of death. Oh, and then Judd tells him about the cemetery because he feels like he owes him. Yeah. Bingo. Whereas in the new film, they say it's just because uh, the the young girl has touched this old man. Mm. Um, But in the original, the the, the 89 film, there's like a a woman who washes their their clothes and Mm. sheets and things. And she has cancer and she hangs herself because she can't bear to live with the cancer. Mm. And it seems to come to nothing. Like she's just, it's just there for an extra gruesome traumatic death that no one really gets upset about. Mm. And I suppose it, it, it's suggestive of the chaos that's going on around and just like an, another horrible sad event just to up the ante. It sort of acts as a trigger for Rachel to then become hypersensitive to everything that's going on around them, but you don't really see much of that. Essentially, all it provides for is a an opportunity for a conversation where Ellie starts to ask about death and Lewis starts to try to explain to her and Rachel stops him. Mm. Lewis comes down in the morning to find uh, Ellie dancing, which is what she used to do. And it's sort of a, it's a beautiful dance, but it becomes more angry, more fierce. And then she starts throwing things around and smashing things, which I thought, again, was really good. Because you're showing that symbolically inside, she's like, what am I? I, I should not be alive. But that makes it like, well, no, she's a demon inside. So... We've got two stories going on here. One is Ellie's been brought back and she doesn't understand why and it's not natural. And the other is there's a demon in her evil deading him, just like pretending to be Ellie, but actually isn't Ellie. And like in Evil Dead, has access to some of Ellie's memories and can pretend to be Ellie, but she's not. One of them's a sad, affecting story. The other one is just a, just a horror film. And like in Evil Dead, you got a lot of humor. You got a, it's 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 set in what it's supposed to be doing, mm. and it's it's much clearer. I personally prefer Evil Dead Two because it's a lot fucking funnier mm. and intentionally so. Whereas Evil Dead One seems to be going out of its way to be very nasty, as does the remake. And Army of Darkness is just very very silly and not particularly nasty at all. Yeah. See, honestly, I think that distinguishing between zombie film and horror film is actually quite key for me because zombie film automatically comes with an implication of that element of this is ridiculous about it. Well, they were on the cusp of making it a drama. They were on the cusp of making it Frankenstein. And rather than going on a kill-crazy rampage, or at least on the way up to that, Mm. she questions... Oh, it's going to happen. ...her reality and who she is and all of this. And it actually is... Ellie being driven mad by her circumstances. That's a really good story. It's sad as fuck and nasty. And again, it could have ended in a kind of hopeful, bittersweet, sad way. But that's something. Instead, as soon as Judd comes to the door and goes, yeah, what are you doing there? It's like, click, and then a light goes off. 
And then Ellie's like, fuck it, I'm going to start going on a kill crazy rampage now. And she's just like glowers at Judd because she, uh, she's like, I'll fucking kill you, Sonny Jim. And then we get the Judd wandering around his house this time. And then he goes up to the bedroom. He's like, you know, who are you? I know you're up here. He's got a gun as well. And um, I knew and there was no tension. She's not in there because the trailer furnished me with precisely where she was hiding, just behind, behind the stairs with the lead piping. No, the, with the scalpel. And um, she slices his Achilles tendon. It's very fucking gruesome. Then she uh, jumps on top of him and transforms into his wife, who says, I'll tell them what you did with me. And I went, oh, so she died, and then he resurrected her and then had to kill her again. Right. Which, again, makes it even, even, even worse. Of like, why'd you bring the cat back, Judd? You've seen what happened with the dog. You've seen what happened with the wife. Yeah. You gave him this shit. What the fuck, Judd? And that changes the story completely because it makes Judd a maniac. Mm. There is something in the book about, um, I think, Gage talks in Norma's voice or something when he comes back right. and says some very horrible things about the, that she cheated on Judd when she was alive and, right. and that kind of thing. Um, okay. Oh, so she does then die? Because um, remember, he saved her from that heart attack. Yeah. This is why reading a book 20 years ago and then... Even more than that, like 28 years ago, this would have been, wouldn't it? I, when you I were don't a young teenager. I think she is dead, actually. Oh, hang on. Yeah, no, I don't think she does die. I think he just talks in her voice. Side note, this is all Evil Dead stuff. Yeah. It's all just sort of like, and now she burns in hell, because that's what she starts saying. Mm-hmm. Little Ellie, she's like, there is no heaven, there's just hell. I'm going to take you back there. Me and Norma there waiting for you. We're going to take you to hell. Going to take you to hell, boy. Mm. And he goes, you can fucking try it, and starts to shoot her. And she goes, fuck no, and then she just stabs the living shit out of him. And it's like, well, that was horrible, but okay. In fact, the, this <clears throat> that scene where in the book where Gage talks with Norma's voice, that's where I first learned the word cuckold, interestingly enough. Cuck! <laughs> she uses the term. Yeah. Okay. Hey, I swallow your soul. I swallow your soul. I swallow your soul. Ah, ah. Swallow this. We're going to now talk about the three, the differences between the three endings. Mm. Uh, in the book and the film, Gage kills the mum yes. when she comes back. That's right. But Ellie is still staying at the terrible grandparents' house, the the in-laws. Mm-hmm. So Ellie's not there at all. Yeah. With everything that's happened, this is in the book and the original film. Cat died, brought it back, zombie cat, killed it. Gage died, brought him back, zombie Gage, killed him. Judd died, we'll just leave Judd where he is. Gage killed Rachel. Lewis drags Rachel's body to the cemetery and buries her and then goes back to the kitchen to play solitaire on his own. In the film, it's just like he just sits there waiting, going, oh, Solid can't wait for her to come back. And it's like, yes, he's, he's cracked. He's absolutely crazy at this point. The actual ending for this... It's not how it ends, it's just how Stephen King probably should have ended it. If it's a full book, is he starts to take her to the cemetery and then just goes, oh, fuck it, and just leaves her and goes, no, I'm just going to, no, I'm not, I've, I've, we've lost almost everything, but I'm not going to do that to you. 
having learned the hardest possible lesson. He's still got Ellie. It's a tragic fucking story. His wife's dead. His boy's dead. But he's learned not to fuck with nature. That's the actual end. Mm. The end of the short story should be he drags her ass up to the Indian burial ground and buries her. He's like, oh, of course fucking he did that. Um, which then it should end there. Because we don't need to see what happens afterwards. We already know what happens afterwards. It's actually better if we don't see what happens afterwards. But this was a short story that he dragged out to feature length. And so in the movie, she comes back and he goes, hello. And then he gets up and kisses her. And she's like the shining woman. But she doesn't start out sexy. He's just kissing. Oh, my God, there's pus. (laughs) So much. She's just a corpse. And then she reaches for the uh, carving knife. And he goes, ah. She stabs him in the back and then it cuts to the Ramones singing, I don't want to get buried in a pet cemetery. It's so tonally. You and me both, Ramones. Fucked. (coughs) But in the book, it's a more disturbing, creepy ending. She just comes into the kitchen and lays her hand on his shoulder and says, darling. It's the same ending, but it's less crass. And you don't have the Ramones debasing themselves. This is very true. But as you pointed out when we watched the 89 film the other day, the real ending of the short story comes after Gage comes back because that's it. That's all you need. The setup of the cat, the payoff of the child. Because, I mean, otherwise you've actually got to depict the murder of a zombie child, which is just not worth it. Mm. Unless it's a black, black comedy like Brain Dead. It's important to note, before we get to the third ending here, Stephen King... As you said earlier, and I was like, hold it in. (laughs) Stephen King did not like this story. Uh, In 1978, King returned to his alma mater, the University of Maine in Orono, to teach for a year as a gesture of gratitude for the education he received there. During this time, his family rented a house on a busy road in Orrington. Uh, The road claimed the lives of a number of pets and the neighborhood children created a pet cemetery in the field near the king's home. King's daughter Naomi buried her cat Smucky there after it was hit and shortly thereafter their son Owen had a close call running towards the road. So basically he took that, turned that into a book and clickety-clack. What if that had actually happened? Just let my nightmare just carry on along here and then just add a graveyard that resurrects people. Uh, He wrote the novel based on their their experiences, but feeling he had gone too far with the subject matter of the book, he discarded the idea of having it published, particularly since both his wife, Tabitha, and his friend, Peter Straub, agreed that Pet Cemetery was too dark and unenjoyable. Tabitha made him keep it in a book, in a drawer. Needing a final book for his contract, King reluctantly submitted it to Doubleday on the advice of his wife. The subsequent success of the book led King to note how both Americans and British readers liked it, even though, and this is his words, it just spirals down into darkness. It seems to be saying that nothing works and nothing is worth it, and I don't really believe that. King has gone on record stating that of all the novels he has written, Pet Cemetery is one which genuinely scared him the most. And if you look at his other books... It isn't in line with those philosophically. There is hope throughout almost everything. In The Shining, the obviously Kubrick twisted it and he specifically turned Shelley Duvall into a squealing screen queen. But the whole thing should be about how Danny's actually quite resourceful and has access to The Shining. And in the end, uh, there's a redemptive quality to the uh, book. And in the end, Jack... Is, it, uh, is this in the book? Jack Torrance's ghost like visits him at his graduation? It's certainly in the miniseries. It's, um, I can't remember if that exact scene happens in the book, but there is a an ongoing implication that Danny is in communication with his future self. Yeah. But there's there's definitely hopefulness to that. It is chock full of darkness, but 
there's that kernel of hope the whole time. We've got to keep fighting against this. Yeah. The Dark Tower has that. Even you, Carrie has that thread of all this horrible stuff happened, but we learned from it that we should not have behaved like that. Not everybody died. Mm. Even The Mist has a better ending than this new film. I'm going to spoil the end of The Mist now, folks. Jump forwards a few minutes if you don't want to hear this one. Everything seems lost at the end. There's fucking creatures and greeblies everywhere. They're in the mist. Everyone's been killed. He, a man and his family, are stuck in their car, surrounded by mist, and the guy's got a gun loaded with enough bullets to kill most of them. And so, eventually, he just hands it round, and they all fucking kill themselves, or, or they, they kill themselves in some way or another. Very specifically, they decide that that's what they're going to do. Because there's no hope. And he decides that to spare him further trauma, he's going to do his son first. Okay. So he kills his son, and then the army turn up and save the day, and they're like, yay, we did it! And he's just looking at the corpses of his family, and he's like, no! And the whole point of that most depressing fucking ending ever is if you could have just, just held on a little bit hold longer. on a little bit longer no matter how dark the night seems we've got to hold out hope that a day may come so that horrendous ending is somehow better than this i did not know until you showed me that the other day that he'd been that down on the book itself yeah I knew he really didn't like the film yeah. the 89 he also didn't film. like the Shining film because it's depressing and, yeah. and, and dark and, and, and doesn't seem to have that hope even at the end but specifically, although Danny is smart yeah but specifically with the Pet Cemetery adaptation he talked about this is in one of his books about horror and um, and about writing he talks about what he refers to as hobs or head-on backwards characters, mm -hmm. which are people who are required to do stupid Manufactures things. Manufacture stupidity. See, he's aware of this he stuff. He is very aware of it. By the way, while I may insult his writing from time to time, I can't deny that Stephen King is one of the greatest writers who's ever lived in terms of the few books that I absolutely love are masterpieces. Mm. And a whole bunch of books that I don't particularly love are considered masterpieces by other people. Yeah. And I will, now knowing that little bit of backstory about it, I will give it that, um, the respect that I have mentioned before for horror which is done to explore a particular thing that the writer is actually afraid of. Clearly he was trying to work out some demons about his own fear yeah. of what might potentially happen to Owen. But he very wisely decided, not this releasing this thing. doesn't need to go out into the public. He, the sad thing was that he couldn't think of a better way of mm. closing it out. Yeah. When forced to release it, he didn't go, you know what? Give me another week or two with this one. I reckon I can rewrite these last few chapters. Yeah, but the, the, I think for me, the what really makes it a, a kind of this is not for me, and I am pushing it very, very far away from me, um, is because of that sense of horror movies being to help you explore your fears and work through your fears and find a way to address the things that you are afraid of. The idea that this thing that dominates your life and causes you so much pain and so much anguish is being afraid that your child may get killed in a traffic accident. You can't solve that. You can put a fucking fence up. You, well, yeah, you can, you can address the little individual things in your life that might make that more likely to happen, yes. But, but car you can't accidents, eliminate it entirely. And not only can you not eliminate it entirely, car accidents are, are the single biggest killer likely. of anybody. 
in this country, in America, where there are anywhere there are loads and loads of cars everywhere, there are loads and loads of deaths that are caused by cars. And it's for some the price reason, we pay. Absolutely. And for some reason, our society has decided it's this worth is it. fine. See also this is worth it. owning guns. They do little things to kind of tweak it and, and improve it a bit. But ultimately, the thing that is most likely to kill you or your child in your life is going to be a car accident. Or the gun in your house. Yeah. Although you can't ride your gun to grandma's house. <coughs> Not in this country, but in America, certainly. You can ride your gun to grandma's house? <laughs> <laughs> built them with fucking wheels now. Yeah. But, but and again, I, and I said this to somebody the other day, and I'm about to spoil something else here, so, but I don't care. But say what it is, and then we'll, they can spin on if they don't want to hear it spoiled. Okay, it's hereditary again. Ah, fucking hereditary. Yeah, exactly. So, but as I I pointed out to somebody else um, the other day, one of the reasons I really, really don't like that film is that it takes something that I am personally very, very afraid of and... And I have no intention of attempting to resolve that fear because there is fuck all I can do about it. Mm. If it happens, it happens. I can do all the things to make sure that I do as much as I can for me personally and the people around me to try and tweak it a little bit. But ultimately, that is a demon that's not going away anytime soon. She's talking about the rather eventful car journey back from the party. Indeed. And fuck you for throwing that in my face with no warning... I'm sorry. Uh, no, 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 not you. <laughs> the filmmaker. With no warning, no build-up, no nothing. By the way, there was a trailer for his new film, uh, Summer, before mm-hmm. this. Yeah. And I was like, dude, what cult hurt you? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, my God. What, what bunch of pagans. Seriously? I ugh. Messed you up, Sonny Jim. Yeah, and he's too young to be... A, 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 to have come through the... Everybody, it's like social workers being obsessed with the idea that Satanists were abusing children en masse. Yeah. But he watched a lot of Rosemary's Baby in yeah. that kind of Apparently film. Apparently so. So there we go. Hey, classic horror. Fuck you. Your response to that was, and they never make movies about child molesting priests. And I said, they do, but they're like... They're spot- not horror movies. They're spotlight. But do you know why and they're sleepers. not... Do you know why they're not horror movies? Because it's because too fucking real. you can't resolve it because that is a demon that's not going away anytime soon. Anyhow, moving swiftly. Now that we've lost most of you, yeah. Um, the mum comes back in the new version of it, and uh, the daughter fucks her up bad with a, a carving knife. And um, just before she dies, after throwing Gage to um, Lewis, uh, she shouts, "Don't fucking bury me at that cemetery!" <laughs> You're kidding? No, she does. She does. Oh my god! You joke. You are joking. I am not joking. <laughs> because, like I said, she's sensible. She's like, I know what you're thinking. Don't fucking bury me at that cemetery. She goes, I don't want to get buried in a pet cemetery. And he's like, ah, oh, that was plan A. <laughs> I broke her now. I'm so sorry, guys. I am not lying. I really am not. It's funny, but I'm not lying. That's, folks, tell her. It's what she says. I don't know if she says don't fucking bury me, but I think she says don't don't bury me. Like I know she says don't bury me. I just don't know whether she said don't fucking bury me in that kind of way. Oh I know. My God. Anyway. Oh my god! <laughs> because they're trying to make these characters relatively more realistic. However, Jason Clark comes bimbling up the stairs. 
after having locked Gage in the car. And then this little tiny girl bashes him on the head with a tiny little wicker chair and knocks him out cold for a good hour. Yeah, good hour. And then drags her mother all the way up to the cemetery and buries her, going, ha, 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 ha. And again, like all of that, like, she's Bride of Frankenstein, who am I? It's out the window. There's just a demon in there. But There's a fucking evil okay. dead demon pretending to be Ellie. Okay, well in that case, I am definitely not seeing this because it sounds like they play every stroke that I hated in Hereditary. What I what pisses me off yes, about the they end, do. What pisses me off about the end of that film is that the the threat and and scariness of the humans is taken entirely out of their hands because all the strings are being pulled by supernatural entity. Fuck off. Yeah. Uh, and then Jason Clark goes running up and gets into the pet cemetery. And he's like shouting uh, uh, for her to come out. And she's you know, then she comes out, stabs at him, and then he stabs at her. And then he gets her on the ground. He's about to chop her head off with a shovel, Evil Dead style. Uh, and then the mum comes back and shoves a fucking grave post through his chest. And then she's like, hi, mommy. And then they get up. And then we cut back to Gage in the car. And this was the beginning of the film. It's like the house is on fire and it sort of shows the, the, the desolation of what's happened. Gage is in the car. He's like, oh, fucking what's happened? And then Church turns up on top of the fucking car. So the, ca- the cat lives. Hooray! Hooray! The cat lives! The cat lives! Long live the cat! What are we going to do? And then Ellie appears. And then the mum appears. And then the dad appears. And they all start to move towards the car. And uh, Gage sort of like waves at them and then uh, Lewis sort of like looms side, uh, over the side door and then it goes and then it cuts to a shitty cover version of Don't Fear the Reaper cue credits and it's like oh they're gonna kill the kid then okay good as long as hope dies as long as everything dies like they didn't even keep the fact that Ellie was still alive in the uh, the book and the original film as long as we completely and utterly did you have to salt the earth so nothing would ever grow again <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's an enormous fuck you. And the the word on this film is very scary. Does that scare you? Because it didn't scare me at any point in the film was I actually scared. Here's the thing. Because I was so fucking disengaged. All I could see were the cogs and wheels moving of them trying to one-up not only the original book, not only the original film, but Hereditary and all the other fucking films, that uh, horror films that come out recently, completely missing the point that the really good ones, It, Get Out, The Babadook, have something going on in them. Yeah. And have a great big slice of hope underneath all that darkness. Here's the thing. All-powerful supernatural entity that ultimately cannot be beaten is the same fucking thing as saying, God moves in mysterious ways, so we might as well not try. Exactly. What are you achieving with that? What is the point? Okay. Again, about it not being about anything. It is revealed in this film... He, he asks, how far does our land extend? And he goes, oh, pretty far, further than you'd want to go. This is Judd. And I thought, oh, shit. That was kind of subtly handled in the uh, film, or just cack-handedly handled in the 89 film. And I don't know if it's in the book. The cemetery, the pet cemetery and the other cemetery, are on, inverted commas, their land. This whole thing... And I kind of knew it was that anyway, because it's like, oh, ancient Indian burial ground. But, like, it's really much more overt if they technically own, quote-unquote, the land that this burial ground is on. It's then about 
the white men coming to America, taking the land. You mess up with sacred land, what do you expect? Exactly, and it's the revenge of the wilderness. And there's also mention of the Wendigo in this film. I think they might have mentioned it in the 89 film, maybe in the book as well. There's some pictures there of the Wendigo, which has got great big antlers and it looks exactly like a Wendigo always looks. And they kind of go, well, it's to do with cannibalism and like the dead coming back. And I'm like, no, it's it's... It's to ward Native Americans off of eating flesh in the depths of winter because it says, if you eat humans, you lose something of yourself. That's that legend. And they've twisted it to be the Evil Dead. Obviously, King didn't originally because he wrote this before the Evil Dead came out. But both films heavily lean on Evil Dead, especially the 2019 one. They've taken a Native American folklore and they've kind of combined it with various other things and turned it into this kind of like sludge of, uh, of various kind of like zombie tales and coming back and stuff. And the Wendigo itself is kind of a presence in this movie. When they go back towards the other cemetery, there's kind of, there's something in the woods. There's the thing that walks behind the rose, if you're a fan of Children of the Corn. This unseen No fox. one's a fan of Children of the Corn. They'll remake it. Um... <laughs> This unseen force. The Wendigo's there pulling strings. The Wendigo is the cult in Hereditary. The Wendigo is God moving in mysterious ways. The Wendigo is the thing you can't beat. The Wendigo is gonna win no matter what. And I fucking hate that. I fucking hate it. Especially as I've spent so many years writing The Wendigo. This offends me on a personal level, like I said. So obviously I'm in a minority of one on this one. And it just, it brought me back to let them go. And I, I, just, I kept thinking about how inspired by this story Let Them Go inadvertently was. I didn't even really realize how much there was in there. A lonely house, surrounded by woods, a family touched by grief, haunted by ghosts of their own regret. So you've got multiple things happening at once. It's not just the immediate threat. You've got the danger outside coming in. You've got Wendigos, obviously. You've got loved ones turning into something else. Obviously, the whole Zelda was deformed in the book, and it was like, oh, this is terrifying. But in let them go there's other loved ones turning into something else and losing other loved ones and it's very sharp and it's very immediate and it's also very multi-layered in terms of emotions there's a lot of different flavors going on here i went out of my way to make it as complex and yet as tight as i possibly could so coming back to this flabby load of crap drives me crazy By the way, that music wasn't from either version of Pet Cemetery. Nothing is that level of delicate. It's Danny Elfman's score for A Simple Plan. I first heard it 21 years ago and was enraptured. He was able to paint a picture in my head of the vast wilderness of an uncharted American forest that planted a seed for me. And the final take-home, this film abjectly refuses to be about anything beyond a vague hand wave in the direction of the word grief, despite everything in the building blocks that it could technically be about. It's not even really about grief, because it doesn't present us with anything like a serious challenge for genuinely grieving people. What's scary is what if your child dies in a road accident and there's nothing you can do about it. That's fucking terrifying to me. 
Like, oh, but what if I bury them in the ancient Indian burial ground and then they come back? That's not scary at all to me. It's so beyond what would happen in, in the realms of, 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 of how I would act. Like, I would just be, I am without my child and, and I've got to live with that. That is terrifying. My child comes back as a zombie and kills my wife with a fucking scalpel. No. <laughs> nope. Not scary. At all. You fucking fail. You fucking fail, horror movie, if that's the best you've got. And this never feels sharp, ever, in the way that other films about grief that are magnificent do. Logan was the first one that came to mind. That film is riven with grief. Ghost. Truly, madly, deeply. Juliet Stevenson, is that? And Alan Rickman in his prime. And the whole story, it's an, he's an allegorical ghost. She's like, I miss him so much. But he may not be there at all. He may just be her imagination of him. Peter's friends has the ghost of a child there that Imelda Staunton cannot get past. Or Solaris, or Waking the Dead with Billy Crudup and Jennifer Collins. Do you remember that one? Or A Monster Calls, or I Kill Giants, which are the same story. We might, in fact, do a show that's both of those at once. Or Harry Potter. All of those books are, in, on some level, about dealing with grief. About dealing with people who are not here anymore, and you are. Or that episode of Black Mirror, Be Right Back, with Domino Gleeson and Hayley Atwell. Or even just Agent Carter, the TV show where... Peggy is dealing with Steve not being there. These are stories that deal with far more intimidating, frightening, often insurmountable prospect, carrying on after you lose someone in a way that tears apart your existence. And this film is, as we've said many times already, it's more like Hereditary, starting out with a very universal human story, which Hereditary had to begin with, you know, my mum and I did not get along and now she's dead and I can't say the things I wanted to say. That was a universal story. And then it destroyed all that with a very specific set of implausible, impossible circumstances that nobody can possibly relate to. And then it was released to thunderous applause. Everyone fucking loved it. They were like, oh, brilliant. What, what a fucking horror masterpiece. And, and both films, this one and hereditary say we have no control and that we have no control is absolutely razor sharp in the death of gage or the death of ellie and that's a film and it's horrible but that's a film and to take it to the bride of frankenstein wrote where if you like folks if you're not familiar with it victor frankenstein becomes obsessed with the idea that he can bring back the dead after his mother dies and all of the Frankenstein's monster making is to become the master of death to not accept death he brings back the monster the monster is in some versions of uh, of the story especially the original book elegant and thoughtful and considers his existence he's not just a brute even though he is capable of terrible violence and takes dreadful revenge upon Victor for taking no responsibility for him and then the bride of Frankenstein is bringing back the woman that he loves, because again, he hasn't learned his fucking lessons, and this is the cruelest, sharpest lesson, because she destroys herself with fire, because she cannot stand this cursed half-existence, and that's the story. Mm. And they lost it. They had that with Ellie in this fairly 
unnerving performance that this little child actor was uh, was capable of, and then they shit it out. Mm. They they just turn it into Evil Dead, and like we've got four Evil Deads and a TV show, and there'll be more Evil Deads. Anymore. And we've also got a pet cemetery. You know, it, like if you're gonna do this again, the fact that it was so flawed that even Stephen King didn't like it, you don't fix it by making it more fucked up. Mm. You fix it by going, okay, what would Steve have written if he was gonna try and make it more in line with the stuff he's already done? What would make it thought provoking? This isn't thought provoking. It just jabs you. Mm. I think what gets me the most is the lack of balance because the world is full of chaos. And I am not... Be kind. ...naive enough. Well, yeah. I am not naive enough to think that it is not. But there is... A, a bad action movie says terrible things happen and we can control everything in response to this. Yeah. A bad horror movie says terrible things happen and we can control nothing in response to this. Neither of those two things are true. There are some things in life that, yes, we cannot control and we never will be able to. That doesn't mean that we should stop trying. It certainly doesn't mean that we should let go of the things that we can control. One of the fundamental elements that I am trying really fucking hard to live my life by is give me the courage to change the things I can, the patience to accept the things I can't, and the wisdom to know the fucking difference. And films like this do not seem to know the fucking difference. And that is why, however marvellous some people might think they are, they are useless to me. Not only that, I can take films with a really bleak, fucking horrible ending. Wolf Creek is a really good example of a kind of a slasher film, which just is like, no, 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 no. The Descent has a weird kind of uplifting, but terrible, like awful, depressing ending. I can take that, especially if someone's learned something. But if there's no learning going on, and it's just a ha-ha, fuck you ending, don't pretend it's about grief. Go with that end feeling, that gut feeling, and run with that the whole way through the movie. Make it just horrible. Make it nasty and funny and, like, just give us something. Because if all it's going to be is, no, 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 it's realistic. No, 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 it's relatable. And then, ha-ha, fuck you, that's nothing. That's starting in one direction, then veering in the other direction, just like the original film did. Where it was like, uh, we're trying to make this a drama. Oh, fuck it, we can't. It's a black comedy. Whereas this was, we're trying to make it a drama. Oh, fuck it, we can't. It's just a nasty, sick little horror movie. The other day, Sharon and I watched the Michael Mann film from 1992, Last of the Mohicans, uh, originally written in the early 19th century by James Fenimore Cooper. And Michael Mann went on record when he made it as saying it was more based on the 1936 film than it was based on Cooper's work. The one directed by George B. Seitz and starring Randolph Scott, Binnie Burns and Henry Wilcoxon. Michael Mann loved that film and wanted to recapture the flavour for modern audiences. And he wasn't alone in his viewpoint on the book. Many people in literary circles consider the Leather Stocking Tales Pentalogy to be virtually unreadable today. 
He said it's not a very good book, and he took issues with Cooper's sympathy for the Euro-Americans and their seizure of the American Indian's domain. So manifestly, the book was supposed to be a rip-roaring adventure with Indians, but Michael Mann transformed it into something else. And there's so much more going on beneath the surface that never really gets voiced. We're confronted with this astonishing American landscape, and we deal with tribes of people that we know are being eroded and it achieves a perspective that simply couldn't be had when the book was originally written. Ergo, by challenging and being critical of the original text, the adaptation transcends the text. And that is exactly what Pet Cemetery needed and didn't get. And I guess now that I've got you all roused up with this stirring music, it's high time to remind you that School of Movies is funded by you guys on Patreon. And I won't mince words here, you guys have kept us going for years now through financial scenarios that would have meant I would have to draw back from the movies and the writing and focus on other far less rewarding work that would make far fewer people happy. Let Them Go exists as a book and an audio drama because of the percentage of our listeners who pay a little every month to keep us going. You did that. So thank you again. And every week I give a shout out to the $15 patrons, those guys and girls at the top tier. So thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, a newcomer who I haven't asked how to pronounce her name yet, Jocelyn Gisidja, Greg Doge, Tim Rosinski, Christopher Wolf, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Christopher Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. And if you're on our Patreon at the $5 level, then the past couple of weeks you'll have been able to hear my quick review of Once Upon a Deadpool, my quick review of Shazam, and my very scathing 55-minute quick review of the 2019 Hellboy film. Here's a clip. The replacement cinematographer they got was Lorenzo Senator. Now, I specifically looked this up this morning before seeing the film because all of the trailers look like absolute shit. And I was thinking... Why is that? Am I? Is it just because they're cut like trainers? Is it the editing or what? And uh, I looked up this guy. He's done a lot of work. I'm going to run down his list as fast as I possibly can. Epoch Evolution, Dragonstorm, Post Impact, Boa vs. Python, Dark Light, Alien Siege, Path of Destruction, Manticore. He's been working since 2003. Locusts, The Eighth Plague, Magma Volcanic Disaster, SS Doom Trooper, Behind Enemy Lines 2, Axis of Evil, Return to House on Haunted Hill, Grendel, Lake Placid 2, Copperhead, Bogeyman 3, Starship Troopers 3, Marauder, Echelon Conspiracy, Messenger 2, The Scarecrow, Wrong Turn 3, Left for Dead, The Fourth Kind, Double, in uh, double, ide I was say double Indemnity, there, it would have been a TV remake, Double Identity, Mirrors 2, Monster Wolf, Triassic Attack, Sniper Reloaded, Spiders 3D, Invasion Roswell, Northman, A Viking Saga, Asylum, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, Risen, Megan Levy, and Hellboy. Now that's a distressing list. If you actually, like, if I, I imagine I'm Neil Marshall mm. looking down this list and going, fuck, 
It's just TV movies. It's just like shitty asylum movies. It's just giant octopus versus shark movies that look like crap on the sci-fi channel and have a budget of about $2,000. This is fucking garbage. How is this guy in charge of photographing my film? The thing that leaps out at me looking at that list, because you've, you've copied this list from Wikipedia. Wikipedia, yeah. Wikipedia has... Uh, people's names in one colour if they have their own page <laughs> and another colour if they don't. There are so many directors on this that list don't have their that own don't page. Have a You're so page. right. Shit. So, like, I'm baffled. These are exec-driven movies where someone put a page on a uh, table and said, make this and make us some money out of it and hire somebody who can put that together. I'm going to give a shout out here to uh, one of our listeners and uh, $15 patrons, Toby Jungius, who, full disclosure, writes frequent episode overview blog posts about New Century. He analyzes my writing, draws conclusions, often finds things that I hadn't even thought of myself, which is very gratifying. But he wrote a Hellboy quick review on his blog post on Tumblr, uh, The Inquisitive J. And he hit on something which I never mentioned in my quick review, and I kind of wish I had, and we're never doing a show on it, so I'm going to uh, mention what Toby said now and encourage all you guys to go and check it out. He outlined that the ethos of this 2019 film can be summed up by what Broom says to Hellboy. Quit your whining, be a man, and grow a pair. Which, if you consider the male vulnerability explored in the Del Toro films, is very saddening. So that's The Inquisitive J on Tumblr. I'm also going to give a shout out to another listener and guest, Jesse Ferguson, who has his own podcast, Recorded Tomorrow, which is all about time travel. Uh, we mentioned this when he was last on. I was on his episode six. We talked about paradoxes. In particular, we talked about Looper. We went for about 45 minutes. If you like time travel discussions, this is a show to listen to. Fuck it, here's a clip. But that is a major paradox. Because if they send back Pillow Man, Paul Dano, 30 years from now, he's not going to be able to go on the run. You right. yourselves have created this paradox. It's so grisly and so repulsive. And it seems to be like, well, we just did this. But it contradicts everything about the film and its relationship with causality. Yeah, and it even is, we can't kill the younger version because an older version won't show up, but... Everything that you're we can... doing to younger, to younger version is affecting older version anyway. Yeah. So you kill him and he's dead. Right. You just close the loop yourself. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's recorded tomorrow, episode six, Paradoxes, The Inquisitive J on Tumblr. And hey, if you got five bucks, support us on Patreon. You get a whole bunch of extra stuff every month. And I get to not have to go and pursue a career as a transponster, which would make nobody happy. I'm no good at being a transponster. I'm good at this. And I bet a couple of you want to go play DuckTales right now. So if you remember back in the mists of time we were talking about Pet Cemetery. Let's draw a comparison between the 1989 film and the new one. Ultimately, the crappy original had Fred Gwynn in a creepy yet lovable role. The person you put up there 
paint the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all. Well, sometimes that is better. And it had the Ramones. This has the performance of Jit Lawrence and very little else. So, let's end on... Don't Fear the Reaper cover? No, let's end on the Ramones. <laughs> <laughs> I have been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. To the sacred place This ain't a dream I can't escape Molders and fangs that are picking up bones Spirits moaning among the tombstones And at night when the moon is bright Someone cries something ain't right I don't want to be buried In a pet cemetery
Well, you're gonna go down that road again, huh? I'm going horse telling you not to go down that road, but you just keep going down that road. There you go again. 